Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Ayala, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's workshop, Current Perspectives on Cancer Survivorship. And this is, a, this is a topic that I know is very near and dear to all of your hearts on the call today. It's an important topic. Um, it's a program that we're doing in collaboration with many other cancer organizations. And, of course, um, with your interest in the program and the collaboration, we have over 428 participants on the call today, and you come from all over the United States. And we also have international participants from Canada, India, Mexico, the Philippines, and the United Kingdom. So it's a bit of a global call as well. This is definitely an important topic for everyone. Um, today's program is made possible by, by Pharmacyclics LLC and Janssen Biotech, Inc., Taiho Oncology, Inc., and is supported by a grant from Genentech, and we really thank them for their support. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Paul Jacobson. Dr. Jacobson is Associate Director, Healthcare Delivery Research Program, Division of Cancer Control and Population Sciences, the National Cancer Institute. And uh, Dr. Um, Jacobson will be addressing an overview and definition of cancer survivorship, including living with uncertainty, a follow-up with your oncologist and primary care doctor, the benefits of communicating with your healthcare team. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Jacobson. Thank you, Carolyn, and I'm delighted to be here today. Uh, I'm also representing the National Cancer Institute's Office of Cancer Survivorship, and I just want to add by way of introduction that I'm a clinical psychologist by training, and prior to joining the government, I worked for 20 years at the Moffitt Cancer Center in Tampa, Florida, where I was involved in both clinical care and research, including developing our survivorship clinic there at the Moffitt Cancer Center. Um, as Carolyn indicated, I'm going to begin with an overview of the field of cancer survivorship and talk primarily about the delivery of care to cancer survivors. So first of all, it's important to note the growing number of people living with a cancer diagnosis. Uh, that number is currently estimated to be approximately 16 million people in the United States. Uh, to put that into some perspective, uh, the population of Pennsylvania is 13 million, our sixth most populous state. And the number of cancer survivors is expected to grow considerably in the next few years, such that by 2040, we're expecting there to be 26 million people living with a cancer diagnosis in the United States. Uh, there are many reasons for this dramatic increase in the number of people living with a cancer diagnosis. Uh, we've seen advances in treatment leading to better survival. We've seen uh, earlier screening, so more people being diagnosed with cancer, but fortunately at earlier stages leading to better outcomes. And we have the aging of the population, and age is one of the major risk factors for cancer. So this has been described uh, by some as the silver tsunami, the growing number of baby boomers entering uh, uh, later adulthood. And that's reflected in the fact that the vast majority of people living with a cancer diagnosis are 65 years of age and older. So really, as you think about a cancer survivor, you need to think about somebody uh, who's on Medicare. So um, not surprisingly, the um, cancer sites most represented among U.S. cancer survivors are those cancers uh, that are most common in the population and that have the most favorable survival. Uh, for women, that's breast cancer. For men, that's prostate cancer. 
uh, followed um, as a somewhat distant third by colorectal cancer and then other cancers. Uh, let me spend a few minutes defining this term cancer survivor. And the National Cancer Institute and other major advocacy organizations take a very inclusive definition in that anyone living with a cancer diagnosis is a cancer survivor. That said, I think it's important to distinguish several subgroups of cancer survivors. And I do that mostly by where they are in relation to their treatment. So one group of people living with cancer is undergoing active cancer treatment. That is, they're currently or have very recently received surgery, chemotherapy, radiation therapy for treatment of their cancer, or may have undergone a stem cell transplantation. There are then those people who've completed active treatment and are now in what we call follow-up care. And most commonly, this would be many people with early-stage solid tumors of breast cancer and colorectal cancer, where they might still be receiving hormonal therapy, for example, uh, women receiving tamoxifen for breast cancer, uh, but are not receiving active treatment in the form of chemotherapy or radiation. And we'll talk about that group in particular because they have some unique survivorship needs. In recent years, though, there's been a growing uh, third group of cancer survivors, and that is individuals receiving long-term treatment to control their disease. Uh, in addition, this is not just speaking of hormonal therapy, but people who are living, uh, many with advanced disease for many years because of new advances in targeted therapy for some of the uh, solid tumors such as lung cancer. It also includes a small but growing group of people for whom an oral agent might be their only form of cancer treatment. So, for example, there's a form of leukemia called chronic myelogenous leukemia, and a uh, really first example of one of the uh, promises of targeted therapy, uh, a drug called imantinib. And so uh, people being treated for chronic myelogenous leukemia will be taking this oral medication for many, many years to effectively control their disease or medications similar to it, and that will be uh, their sole form of cancer treatment. So in some ways, what we're talking about here is the distinction between acute care and chronic care. The acute care is the sort of short-term period of months in which people receive active treatment. The chronic care may be the chronic delivery of anti-cancer medications or the chronic care that people need once they've completed cancer treatment. Now, in 2006, there was a major report on cancer survivors issued by the Institute of Medicine now the National Academy of Sciences. And this report brought considerable attention to one of the major problems that people were experiencing in the post-treatment period following completion of active treatment. The report concluded that the transition from active treatment to post-treatment care is critical to the long-term health of cancer survivors, but unfortunately many patients get lost in transition and don't receive the care they should. In fact, that was the subtitle for this report, Lost in Transition. The report offered several recommendations to, to address this problem of getting lost in transition. And one of the major recommendations was that when treatment ends, when active treatment ends, all survivors should receive a summary record that includes important disease characteristics and information about the treatments they received, what we call a treatment summary. We'll be talking more about this, both Dr. Fleischman and me. And in addition to that, they should be provided with a follow-up care plan that incorporates what we consider evidence-based standards of care for people for follow-up. And together, we call this treatment summary and follow-up care plan a survivorship care plan. You may have heard that term. So what are the major elements of a survivorship care plan? There are really five of them that were specified in this report. 
and that have been used ever since. The first piece of a follow-up care plan is what is going to be the plan for surveillance for recurrence of the original cancer or a new cancer. So you think about mammography being a screening test, but for a woman who's had breast cancer, she's going to go repeated mammograms to make sure that the cancer has not returned. And also it's important to point out that having a single cancer diagnosis does not reduce your risk of other cancers. And so, for example, if you've been diagnosed with breast cancer, you still should be following guidelines, for example, for screening for colorectal cancer. So what's the plan for that? How often should these tests be done? And who's going to do them? The second area is assessment and treatment or referral for persistent effects. And Dr. Fleischman is going to talk in more depth about these. But for example, we know that many people treated for cancer are going to continue to experience pain or fatigue following the completion of their treatment. Many patients experience sexual dysfunction due to some of the treatments they received or surgery. Uh, we know that many people experience emotional stress as a consequence of having had cancer and may have lingering psychological issues. And we also know that for people, several people, there will be financial concerns and employment issues that need to be addressed. So what's the plan for those? The third area is evaluation of risk for and prevention of late effects. And while these drugs used to treat cancer can be very powerful in, in, in changing the course of cancer and leading to better survival, Unfortunately, many of them have side effects that create other medical problems. And so, for example, there are certain medications that create cardiac problems. There are certain medications that increase the risk of bone thinning or osteoporosis. And patients will need to be monitored because they could be at greater risk for these late effects. The fourth area is health promotion. Um, this is something that's often overlooked in that uh, while the focus has been on eradicating disease, once the treatment is completed, we now need to restore the person to full health. And there are many things people can do on their own to improve their health. And I'm talking about issues related to a healthy diet, exercise, and tobacco cessation. We can't overlook these ways of helping people adjust in the post-treatment period and increasing their odds of living a healthy life. And the last piece of this, and the one, frankly, that's been the most difficult to address, is the coordination of care. And we'll be talking more about that. But who is going to provide care in the follow-up period? What are the frequency of visits, the tests, and who's performing them? So let's talk a little bit about the status of a survivorship care plan adoption. And I, I would suggest that you each sort of ask yourself, uh, have you ever received a survivorship care plan? And I'd be interested to know uh, 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 what the results of this, if we could do an informal poll. But looking at national statistics, we know that survivorship care plans, or the idea of a survivorship care plan, has been broadly endorsed by professional organizations, by advocacy groups. But sadly, when we look at adoption, it's been somewhat limited. Uh, breast uh, uh, and colorectal cancer are the two major diseases where we hope that nearly everyone will receive a survivorship care plan, but we know that we're falling well below desirable levels, not just at community oncology practices, but also at some of our major cancer centers. And there are a number of barriers to this, which we can talk about. Uh, partly, uh, the problem is that these treatment summaries, uh, until we have uh, medical records that can dispense this information more readily, have to be done manually. And so this is a time-intensive process, typically requires somebody with some medical training to prepare that treatment summary. And what we need to do at the policy level is make sure that there's adequate reimbursement for that. And we also need to make sure that electronic health records in the future 
can make this treatment information more accessible. And the other issue is that there's been some research on survivorship care plans, and it's looked only at giving a survivorship care plan primarily to a patient. And what the research shows is that just handing a survivorship care plan to a patient may not have the desirable outcomes, that people who receive a survivorship care plan don't necessarily have better quality of life, less distress, better symptom control, et cetera. What we do know is that their healthcare delivery might be improved, they know better who to go to for their follow-up care, and really what we need to do is not just look at giving people a survivorship care plan, but implementing the recommendations that are in that plan. I like to say that a survivorship care plan is necessary for good survivorship care, but it's not sufficient. We need to make sure that the recommendations listed in that plan are enacted, that patients know where to go to receive the care they're supposed to receive, and that the various people on their healthcare team communicate and coordinate with each other. So let me talk briefly, I think I have a few minutes left, about the different models of survivorship care and think about yourself where you may or may not be receiving your survivorship care. The old model of this before this Institute of Medicine report came out 10 years or so ago was that many patients continued to be followed by their oncologist for everything. And uh, while there are certain advantages of this, patients be comfortable, they have a relationship with their oncologist, they, they have continuity of oncology care, we know that there are certain disadvantages of that. But for example, the focus may be on recurrence and, and not on health promotion, that many providers lack the time and expertise to manage long-term related effects, and importantly, that many patients' primary care needs may not be met. Uh, as I said, most cancer survivors are 65 years or older, and they likely have other chronic diseases, and these may not be well managed by an oncologist who doesn't regularly see somebody, for example, with diabetes. And lastly, it's really not sustainable in many cancer treatment settings. There just isn't enough follow-up care clinics to accommodate the growing number of survivors. So many programs have developed multidisciplinary survivorship clinics. Some of you may have been seen in one where care is provided by a team. And uh, this is really suitable for facilities with extensive resources. And it has the advantages of, if you will, one-stop shopping to receive all your survivorship care needs. Uh, but it may be that uh, not all survivors need this level of care, and it's very resource and time intensive, and it's not easy to replicate this in the community settings where the vast majority of people with cancer are treated in this country. It also may discourage patients, again, from establishing relationships with the primary care provider. So the third model, and the one in which uh, there seems to be a growing consensus, is that we should have some kind of shared care between the oncology team and a primary care provider. And that at a certain time, the care should transition from being primarily with the oncology team to being primarily with the primary care person. Uh, the, the survivors can continue to benefit from specialists when they're at highest risk for occurrence in the months and years just following completion of cancer treatment. Uh, but they could also benefit from having a primary care provider who knows them, who knows their other health problems, and again, maybe more local and more convenient to see than somebody at a major cancer center. So that's sort of where we are in the terms of the state of the art here. Uh, we need research that looks at these different models of care, and we need to get beyond this one-size-fits-all approach that everybody should be treated the same way as a survivor. There are many people who really need to be followed very closely by the oncology team because of receiving very intensive treatment or because of the toxicities they have. 
there are other people who it would be appropriate as they near the end of cancer treatment to consider transitioning most, if not all, of their care to a primary care provider uh, in consultation with the oncology team. And again, that's not a one-size-fits-all solution here. We need to really come up with some better guidelines for how we can advise both providers and patients about where they can receive the best care and achieve the best outcomes. Um, I think I have a few minutes left. I want to leave you with some sort of parting thoughts here and some take-home messages. And um, what I want you to consider are, are three things as you think about uh, the treatment you've completed, if you are completing treatment or have completed treatment. Uh, first, did you receive a treatment summary? And um, it's not too late to ask your healthcare providers to provide you with one. Uh, I'll go through some of the elements that are in a survivorship care, play, uh, excuse me, in a treatment summary, but you can find much of this information online. You want information about what type of cancer you had and the types of treatments you received, surgeries, radiations, the areas of the body that were radiated, contact information for all the physicians who were involved in your cancer treatment, the names of the drugs you took or administered and the doses if possible, not just the cancer drugs, but the supportive care medications or pain medications, and the possible risks of side effects or late effects. The second thing is a follow-up care plan. You should have a clear sense of what follow-up tests and appointments you should receive, what tests are required for recurrence, for other cancers, for late effects, at what intervals you should receive these, what doctors you should be seeing for these tests. If it's the oncologist, you may want to ask, how long is it I'm going to continue to see you as an oncologist, or when might be appropriate for my care to be turned over in, uh, in part or in total to our primary care provider or a nurse practitioner. And certainly the follow-up care plan, and Dr. Fleischman will talk about this, should address problems or issues you're currently having and where to receive care for them. And the third piece of this, the last piece of this, are things you can do to help yourself. And here I would underscore health promotion. Uh, think about your diet. Think about whether or not you exercise. There's really emerging evidence that diet and exercise are two powerful ways to reduce the risk of cancer occurrence. If you smoke, stop. If you use alcohol excessively, cut down. Are you sleeping well? Are you managing stress? There are many things you can do to help yourself, or if you're stuck, certainly your health care providers can help you. Uh, establish a relationship with a primary care provider and follow up on management of other health conditions. Uh, you, you are inevitably going to have other health issues besides cancer, and you should have a doctor you can see regularly. Monitor and keep a record of all your follow-up appointments. And if you are having persisting problems, uh, bring them up with your health care provider. They may or may not be related to your previous experience with cancer, but they need to be carefully assessed and evaluated to know how best to treat them. And lastly, where we are with care coordination uh, unfortunately, you need to be the glue that holds your health care team together and to advocate for your health. And until we have medical records that speak to each other better, uh, you need to be the keeper of your medical information and make sure it's shared with the appropriate providers. I'll stop there. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Jacobson. That was really outstanding and, and really set the stage for today's program. So I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A. Um, and um, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, and our next speaker is Dr. Stuart Fleischman. Dr. Fleischman is former founding director of Cancer Supportive Services, Continuum Cancer Centers of New York, and author researcher in oncology. Um, and Dr. Fleischman is going to be addressing the importance of treatment summaries, so he will be saying more about how important they are, um, managing post-treatment side effects and late effects, 
and quality of life concerns, including your fears of recurrence. And it's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Fleischman. Thank you, Dr. Messner, and thank you, Dr. Jacobson, for a really good review of uh, what is a rather new topic. A number of years ago, we really didn't have to concern ourselves about the portability of our records. Um, our records seem to get uh, sent from one doctor to another, usually office to office, office to hospital, or we were able to just give a general sense of what had happened, and that provider could pick up the, the details because things weren't so complicated. But as many aspects of our life has gotten more complicated, Complicated, so has our uh, care, especially after receiving treatment for cancer, which involves so many different types of treatments and so many different people. Um, as Dr. Jacobson said, there are a number of models of uh, care, and the transition from most of the care being done at the oncologist's office to a new primary care doctor or a primary care provider. Uh, when we say doctor, we really do mean uh, including um, nurse practitioners and physician's assistants, assistants that provide a good deal of the primary care um, all over the country depending upon where you live. Um, it's sometimes easy for them to pick up um, where you left off with your oncologist, but sometimes not. And um, because the details here really count, we uh, believe that the, the treatment summaries or the survivorship care plans are an essential part of this communication, especially when people move around from place to place, especially when those of us who have insurance often find that the providers that we can see in our network sometimes change, um, sometimes without our knowledge, but sometimes with some warning, and that we have to have information in a format that can be taken from provider to provider and well understood. Hence why we are talking about the survivorship care plans. So the, the decision about at what point to move from the specialist care back to the generalist care is somewhat individual, some between you and your cancer treatment team, and sometimes, uh, although we don't like to think that this is so dictated by our insurance or change of insurance or lack of insurance. But the kinds of information that need to travel with each individual include really specific information, exactly what kind of cancer that we've had. And that includes not just the part of the body involved or the type of cancer involved, but a specific um, level of detail, which includes a stage. How big was the cancer? Had it gone to the local lymph nodes? Had it spread to any other parts of the body, um, any other organs? And there is a, um, a well-accepted, well-established staging uh, system for this, and this is the kind of language that people speak in shorthand and can easily um, go from one physician to another, the um, generalists sometimes need a little bit of help with this since they don't see cancer patients all the time. So the type of cancer exactly, the stage, um, is really, really important. The technical details that Dr. Jacobson mentioned are extremely important in the survivorship care plan, and those include exactly what kind of chemotherapy you got, um, a, a total of the milligrams, whether it's uh, especially for chemotherapy that's been given intravenously, whether directly into your vein or through a port, um, and all of the medicines that go with it, the nausea, the anti-nausea medicines, the pain medicines, 
medicines. Very, very important. Um, if it's radiation, knowing exactly where the radiation machine was pointed or the radiation portal is, is important to the doctor who's picking up the, or the practitioner who's picking up the follow-up care, as well as the dose of radiation. Because should there be a time when radiation is necessary again, knowing how much radiation was given and in what direction and in exactly what area is important so um, it can be used successfully in the future with out making the tissues too thin. Um, you had surgery, the kind of surgery. Uh, sometimes that is pretty uh, knowable by the primary care provider by where your scar is, but these days with smaller scars and minimally invasive surgeries, it's important to know exactly what was done. Um, based upon that, the uh, providers, uh, the cancer providers can give an idea of exactly what should be done in the near future and the far future. And Dr. Um, Jacobson alluded to that too. So are there any medications that you're taking now as a result of your cancer treatment? Um, the, the survivorship care plans don't always list all of the medicines for other reasons like high blood pressure or diabetes or thyroid problems, but sometimes they do when there's overlap with the cancer treatment. Um, the, 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 the next big area in the survivorship care plan really needs to include the side effects that you may expect. It's very hard to predict everything for everyone, but there are certain patterns about uh, side effects that can sometimes come on later on based upon the kind of cancer and the kind of treatment. So, for example, a known but not terribly common side effect is um, in a situation where somebody received um, adriamycin, one of the common chemotherapy drugs, and radiation, and then may have some inflammation in the area, on, in, in, let's say in the bowel, for example, ongoing afterwards. Um, and that's the kind of information that needs to be um, addressed by the primary care doctor in consultation back with the uh, medical oncologist. And there are a number of situations like that where there is, could be a, a, a late effect that needs to be addressed. Um, pain in, in general is something that um, happens closer to the time of treatment, but there are some pain syndromes that will last in a minority of people long after the treatment is over and long after uh, you're really feeling back to yourself. And those generally include nerve ending problems, whether it, be, it could be in the hands or in the feet. Um, those require specialist intervention. Uh, we are all concerned about the uh, high use of narcotic pain medicines, and most of the time uh, those are the last medicines to use for this type of a situation, and a pain specialist who is uh, really um, conversant in uh, cancer therapy can really help best. Um, the um, plans for future care, as Dr. Uh, Jacobson also mentioned, are really important. Um, we, we are concerned that people continue to get their screenings for the same cancer and other types of cancer. Who does it? Uh, who does the report go to? And at what interval? There are guidelines for most of these things, and some of it is that the, the guideline is then adjusted based upon your situation or even your family history. Um, it's important to um, follow these guidelines. 
sometimes, and, and Dr. Jacobson mentioned, as um, we get older, some of these tests may not be approved for reimbursement uh, by our insurance companies, and that's a discussion, again, with our primary care doctor and sometimes in consultation back to the oncologist. Um, so future care is really an important focus, and um, as Dr. Jacobson also mentioned, the kinds of things we can do for ourselves are very, 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 can't say very enough times, important in what we do. Um, a proper diet, and we hear this all the time. We hear it from our cardiologists. We hear it from our primary care doctors. We hear it from our cancer specialists. And pretty much everybody is saying the same thing, that uh, there are certain foods that cause chronic inflammation in the body. There are certain foods that may lead to problems, and we need to have a, a healthy diet. And healthy diet, although there are general guidelines out there, is really based upon your health situation, what kind of cancer you had, what kind of treatment you had. Um, we also talk about activity. Many, people's, uh, many, many people don't like the term exercise, but we really mean activity. Many steps per day, stretching, reaching. Uh, those of us who feel more motivated or who do understand the evidence basis know that a regular workout routine is better. It doesn't need to be in an expensive gym. It could be with um, two bottles of water, a good pair of sneakers, and some stretching and walking and, um, and bending exercises. Again, it depends upon the situation, the kind of cancer, the other health problems that uh, you, you have had before cancer or have developed during the time that you were treated doesn't need to be expensive, but it does need to be done. Um, mostly, many people live close to um, a facility like a YWCA or YMCA or a, um, a school gym that opens up to the community when school is out of session. Um, and these kinds of places can be low cost and high yield. Um, really a good, a good place to learn how to get more active uh, in something that is available in your community. Um, these are the sorts of things that are really, really essential. Diet, exercise, having a purpose. Dr. Uh, Jacobson also spoke about the emotional toll that cancer has had. That is an understatement. And uh, getting back to oneself is sometimes quite difficult. And we know that there are a number of places to get help with this. Um, I can't help but put in a plug for Cancer Care. Cancer Care, the organization sponsoring this call, does extremely um, wonderful services on the telephone, online, and in person. And I think you'll hear more about that in a little while. The sexual problems after um, after uh, cancer treatment can be something that people sometimes don't talk about or they're embarrassed. They feel that, well, I've survived and I'm happy to be alive, so this is a price I'll pay, but that's not always necessary. And beginning this dialogue with your primary care team in consultation with your oncologist may help get you to some specialized help. And there are um, people in the sexual health rehabilitation area that understand cancer, understand the treatments, and may be able to help out. Um, most, many people really are quite candid about the fear that the cancer will come back, and it is very common for um, most of us, after we are treated for our cancer, if we get a pain or a fever or a symptom that we are somewhat uh, 
that we don't usually have to associate that with a recurrence or a relapse. And it is important to know that you have a primary care provider to go to or an oncologist to go to to help evaluate that. That generally abates in time that you're less frightened with every symptom, but that fear is something that we all live with, and it's important to have a, play, a perspective about it so that it doesn't require lots of unnecessary testing, which themselves could have their own side effects. Um, it's a, sort of a, a a, 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 an overview of the kinds of things that not only need to be in the um, survivorship care plan or the cancer treatment summary, but really outlines an approach to all of your care, both cancer-related and non-cancer-related, as well as personal habits um, after you finish your treatment. And it is um, somewhat individualized, but there are guidelines for most common situations and the rest, like regular medical care, and for those, those of us who haven't been treated for cancer, starts with your primary care doctor, starts with established guidelines, and then looks to specialists. Do see my notes. I neglected to talk about tobacco. Dr. Jacobson mentioned that um, in addition to exercise and activity, uh, keeping tobacco away from your body, um, using it yourself. Um, secondhand smoke uh, is really, really important. Uh, we have learned over the last 30 years or so that um, tobacco is intimately involved with many poor health states, not just cancer, but cardiac, um, lots of other things. And it's important to make sure that that doesn't worsen our situations and encourage the people who we live with, even if we're not smokers, um, to make sure that uh, the smoke is um, something that everybody can avoid for themselves and for a family member who has survived cancer. So the details here are um, critical, and the, there are although there are basic guidelines, a lot of the details are, are highly individual, and having a primary care provider who can um, speak with or communicate electronically with in some, in some confidential way, your oncologist really makes sense. It's, a, it's sometimes a wonderful graduation. And as we know, we all cry at graduations. And it's hard to know why. And it's really the end of something and the beginning of something else. And um, our relationship with our cancer treatment team is sometimes very close, um, very intense. And it's hard to give that up. But as we move on or sometimes move away, uh, the primary care team can take over some of that and hopefully all of it with, uh, with the good direction of both uh, national guidelines and our oncologists. So I'm going to stop here so we have enough time for questions. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Fleischman. That was wonderful and very comprehensive. And um, there are questions coming in now, so I, there are questions definitely um, for you and um, uh, and for Dr. Jacobson, so thanks so much. I'm going to say a few words about cancer care before we go into the questions, but I want to remind you all that we do have now time for questions, so start to prepare your questions. Some of you have begun to send in questions, but for all of you to be aware that we will be taking your questions in just about two minutes, so just hold on there, and we'll be right with you with the questions. So I'm going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. So I just want to say a few words about the cancer care services because this is an important 
aspect of getting just um, support um, sometimes. Your healthcare team, of course, is a wonderful support. But sometimes it's helpful for many to find a place that really just only provides psychosocial support. And Cancer Care is one of those organizations. Um, so we have a staff of oncology social workers, trained oncology social workers, and we provide a host of services, and they're national in scope, so you can reach us um, anywhere you are in the country. And to some extent, for some of our programs, they are available internationally as well. So first of all, we do have a HOPE line, and that number will be in all the materials you get after the program itself. So rather than you're trying to write down a phone number, I will, that will all be given to you at the end of the program um, when you get your evaluation form. Um, and we also have a very active website, of course, as well. So you can contact us either by, by the, calling us on the phone or visiting our website and just posting your question. Um, we do provide individual counseling, um, which is a chance to talk with a trained oncology social worker about your concerns, about cancer survivorship, about living with cancer, about workplace issues, talking to your children about cancer, thinking about it yourself, thinking about survivorship yourself, all the issues we've talked about today, and then many more, of course. Um, and um, we also have a number of support groups done on the telephone and online. At the moment, we have over 120 online support groups, and the support we do have support groups specifically for cancer survivors and for um, their caregivers or people who have been who are concerned and love them and just really like to have their own group to talk about issues themselves as well um, so that um, that whole community of support that um, has been, is often so important as a cancer survivor or as someone living with cancer. Um, and so we do have those groups as well. And the international groups, this program here, I mean the, the online support groups and these programs, these education workshops as well, are available to people internationally um, so that um, those are services you can access, as well as if you have a question or concern, you can come to our website and post it in our oncology social groups. We'll get back to you um, and connect with you and, and, and help you with uh, your concerns and questions. We also do have a number of publications that we send out to people or that are available to download from our website and, of course, a very active website. So with that all being said, we now do have time for questions, and we have lots of time for questions, so I'm going to um, ask I'm Ayala to explain to you how to cure for questions. We're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. And, um, and at the very end, if we don't get your question, I'll give you some ideas of how to get your questions answered. Okay, Ayala. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touch-tone telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Again, ladies and gentlemen, to ask a question, please press star, then one. And we have a question from one of our online um, uh, participants. Um, and the question is, um, and I'm going to direct this question um, to, um, to Dr. Um, Jacobson to begin. Who do you believe should be providing the survivor care plan if the patient is diagnosed at one facility and then goes to another hospital system to receive treatment? Yeah, so uh, that's an interesting question. Uh, if you're talking about cancer treatment, um, it's really the responsibility of the uh, institution where the treatment was completed. Uh, certainly they wouldn't have begun uh, treatment at the second institution unless they had accurate records about prior treatment. So I would imagine it was at the second institution uh, where they would have the most complete records. That said, uh, it may be necessary to contact the first institution if you find that details of your medical history, your treatment history, are not contained in the information available from the second institution. So again, 
Uh, I think it's incumbent upon the institution completing treatment to make sure that they have the complete information and share it, and they're the ones who should be preparing a treatment summary. Excellent. Thank you. And Dr. Fleischman, do you wish to add to that? That's kind of the issue that many people uh, probably I face. think it, it, it really does make a complex problem more complex, but um, sometimes we receive treatment uh, from a physician or a radiation center or an infusion center in the community that's affiliated with a big institution but not necessarily owned by it. And sometimes the um, records are shared and sometimes not. But asking uh, an administrative person like an office manager or uh, you know, how to access your records is, um, is the way to go. Um, you know, there are federal guidelines that discuss uh, our, uh, our access to our own records, but there are also state laws that change from place to place. So it really does vary from place to place how to do this. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and we have another question from our online participants, um, and we'll start with, um, with Dr. Fleischman. Should the primary care physician receive a copy of the survivorship care plan? <laughs> so, Oh, that's a resounding yes. <laughs> and they can get that a number of ways. They may be able to get that on paper if it's given to you. Um, a number of facilities are giving survivorship care plans on a little thumb drive or a flash drive that you can take from one place to another. Um, if two physicians' offices are in the same network, they can often access the same uh, information electronically, and uh, it's one less responsibility for uh, us all to have. Dr. Jacobson explained that it's somewhat unfair that this is the case, but it often is the case. Um, so it could be a number of, of, of different ways. Excellent. And Dr. Jacobson, do you want to add anything? Or? Uh, completely agree. No matter whatever it takes, make sure your primary care provider receives it, whether he or she has received it directly from your oncology care providers or whether, unfortunately, it's necessary for you to deliver it. And we have um, another question. They're actually all related to survivorship care plans, so I'm going to give this one to Dr. Jacobson. Um, this particular person writes, I have not received a survivorship care plan. What, what what can I do? What, and they're from another country, so the issue is what you know. What how can I how can I get that? Because I know that it's a struggle for some people to get it, both in the U.S. and internationally. So if you could just comment on that. Yeah. So I guess it depends on how long it's been since you've seen your oncology providers, um, and if you're in contact with them. If you're in contact with them, then certainly it's appropriate to ask them about uh, receiving a treatment summary and then receiving written recommendations for follow-up care. So I would consider contacting your last oncology provider for that information. If that's not feasible, uh, then it may be necessary to work with the primary care provider and, as best you can, begin with the treatment summary, and that will help you construct uh, with your primary care provider or other qualified medical professional what, what, what follow-up care you should be receiving. But it's really essential to know about your treatment exposures and your past treatment history to develop a tailored survivorship care plan. Thank you. And Dr. Fleischman, do you wish to add anything? Or? Yeah, it, it, this again speaks to the splintered nature of the care we receive. Um, the surgeons always uh, dictate an operative report after a surgery. A lot of it is in technical jargon, uh, but it says, you know, what they did, what they found, 
um, and that is routine. Uh, I would say 100% or extremely close to that, and I think it's very close to 100%. Radiation oncologists will provide um, a treatment summary for the other providers. That is common. It's common for that to take a few weeks after treatment. It's not done the next day, as some people would like, but it just doesn't happen. Um, but a treatment summary is very common from radiation oncologists. Medical oncologists are not at all used to doing this. And they are the ones that are often faced with the challenges that we spoke about before of extracting the information from the other specialist's office or records, manually setting up or filling in uh, the survivorship care plan or treatment summary. And as Dr. Jacobson eloquently said, just getting the piece of paper is not enough, but having a sit-down uh, with a member of the cancer treatment team, and it's done by a number of different people in a number of places, um, to ask questions and to have things clarified. There is a lot of medical terminology that's involved here that may not be um, completely understandable by some of us that haven't had the training in medical terminology and having that sit down or some places are sending the plan and doing it electronically. So there's a good uh, opportunity for questions and answers. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. And we have another online question. I'm going to send Dr. Fleischman to start. Um, so what is the place of spiritual guidance in the life of survivors and caregivers? Good question. Um, I, I, I guess we didn't include that as one of the dimensions, but it's most clearly associated with the emotional component of uh, recreating one's life after cancer treatment and finding a place for oneself in the world. Um, personally, I have seen with patients going through um, cancer treatment that having a purpose um, is really, really important. Um, having a purpose of being in the moment, having a purpose of a place in one's family, a place in one's community, a place in one's school, a job, whatever the setting is, is very important. Some of us get that through everyday means. Some of us really understand that in a more spiritual or religious way. So um, for those of us who crave that religious component, it is very helpful to have that. Um, we do know that in most of our cancer centers there are um, a variety of uh, chaplains um, that come from a number of different religious backgrounds, and these are chaplains that are trained in what they what are, is called pastoral care, um, delivering um, and participating in spiritual care to people who are in the midst of treatment for an illness. That may be slight. That, that's sort of the specialist version of, of uh, spiritual care, which may be different from what we get in our local parish or synagogue or imam from a generalist in the community. Um, there's a similar paradigm as in medicine in the provision of spiritual care, and we find that there's a generalist and a specialist as well, exactly what we see in medicine. So those of us who 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 find that important in our lives should seek it, should seek it first from uh, um, from our, our cancer providers to see if there's any con any connection they can make with pastoral counseling or then to turn to our community people um, if that's not possible. Excellent. Thank you. And uh, Dr. Jacobson, do you wish to add anything to that? Oh, very comprehensive answer. Nothing to add. 
Okay, excellent. Okay. Um, so there's another question. Um, so, um, and this is for Dr. Jacobson. What actions can I take to improve my health post-treatment? I know you've kind of addressed them, but are there any other things that you want to address about yeah. that? It's an important topic, certainly. Um, again, it, it kind of comes down to common sense in terms of what is a healthy lifestyle and how can you live a healthier lifestyle. Um, and so the, really the, the, the major elements of that, uh, as we've talked about, have to do with diet, exercise, um, and and uh, avoiding uh, harmful habits. Uh, I will say that if you are initiating dietary changes or an exercise regimen, uh, it is uh, many instances useful to talk about this with a medical uh, care provider to make sure there are no contraindications to exercise, for example, if you have a cardiac history or something like that. And, you know, diet, people tend to assume that they need to undertake some radical dietary changes but really what we're talking about and what the evidence suggests is, is the basics of increasing fruit and vegetable consumption and limiting consumption of dietary fats. It, it doesn't get too much more complicated than that. If you want to undertake greater dietary changes, fine, but make sure that you're receiving sufficient nutrients uh, through your daily diet. But really it is the, the uh, basic guidelines here. The American Cancer Society on their website actually has guidelines for physical activity and exercise for cancer survivors, and I would encourage people to take a look at those and talk about uh, major changes you're going to undertake with a healthcare provider. And that's an excellent point. We actually do have a, um, they are a collaborating organization on this program, and when we send you all the evaluation, we will send you the link to that um, so that you can actually just go to their website and the specific link for cancer survivorship so you actually will be able to see that and that's a wonderful resource. Thank you. Thanks. Um, thank you, Dr. Jacobson. And Dr. Fleischman, do you wish to add anything as well? Yeah, sure. Um, it, it's interesting when uh, we've looked into this, the types of dietary, uh, let's say, recommendations from the American Cancer Society are very, very, very similar to the American Heart Association's recommendations for heart-healthy eating, which are really similar to the um, government's uh, health, healthy lifestyles, healthy eating um, guidelines that come out usually every 10 years. And Again, certain cancer treatments need some specialized attention for people who have some um, trouble with the speed in which the food goes through their system or if they're having diarrhea, that, that's persistent. But for most people, um, the idea of a plate that has mostly plant-based foods with nutrition from non-animal sources, as Dr. Jacobson said, low-fat, but good, good variety of protein, lots of fruits and vegetables of many colors. Um, this is universal between all of these guidelines. Um, and uh, some, some particularization for your individual situation may be helpful, especially swallowing problems, but there are just about all of these can be adapted one way or another another, and it's basically the same message. Excellent. Thank you. And um, we have um, a question from our online participants. Um, so, and for Dr. Fleischman, how can I manage the fear and anxiety I feel before my follow-up appointments? Uh, well, I've seen, I've seen people do this in a number of ways. I have seen people who avoid their follow-up appointments because they don't want to have that anxiety. I've seen people who go in thinking they're feeling okay um, and they just 
take the idea that if something happens, I'll deal with it at the time. I have seen, though, a number of people over the years who sort of gird themselves up for getting bad news, even though they're feeling okay. And um, they often go through a period of hours or days when they're really frightened that they're going to get bad news. And they get extraordinary relief when they find that everything is okay. Um, I've often found, and I think my colleagues would agree, that you generally go through cancer as you go through the rest of life. And some of us are naturally optimistic, and some of us are, necess- are, are often pessimistic. Some of us um, tend not to think about something until we're at the, at the moment. And we generally follow the same patterns that we do for other things. So I would uh, go with what what is successful for you, and if what you're doing isn't successful, um, there may be some help and some counseling to try to figure out how to fix that. Excellent. Thank you. That's very helpful, I think, to people. And, uh, and Dr. Um, um, Jacobson, do you want to add to that? Yeah, I, I just really to reinforce the point that some degree of uh, nervousness and apprehension is normal. Uh, because, uh, you know, there is a potential of getting uh, bad news. What uh, you need to watch out for is if you're not relieved once you get good news uh, uh, after a follow-up visit, or if your anxiety or concern reaches the point where you're avoiding your follow-up visits. Uh, There are some things you can do to sort of take the edge off some of your tension. If you haven't practiced any relaxation exercises or even some meditation exercises, uh, these work very well for time-limited increases in anxiety to kind of get you through the night or the few hours before a test. But as Dr. Fleischman indicated, if it gets beyond this or if you're not relieved when you get uh, good news after a follow-up test, then that seems to be somewhat of an abnormal situation that requires more attention. And I actually should add that many of you are are going to um, centers where there may be staff who can actually teach you the techniques that Dr. Jacobson has mentioned. And if for some reason you don't have access to those personnel in your staff, when you call our 800 number at Cancer Care, our staff actually can walk you through some very um, specific um, uh, techniques of mind body or relaxation techniques that you might find very useful not only for those appointments you have, but just in general in your in your day-to-day living um, to enhance it. So um, you can consider that as another a takeaway um, from from this call today. It's something that might be useful to you as well. Um, and we have another online question um, here, um, and this is for Dr. Jacobson. Um, who should be responsible for giving and discussing the care plan with the patient? And, Yes. So um, ultimately, it's the uh, uh, oncologist. Uh, In some instances, though, uh, a nurse or nurse practitioner will be involved in developing the plan and may be appropriate for them to deliver the plan as well. So it should be uh, certainly uh, the treating oncologist uh, and or a uh, allied health professional who's worked very closely with them. And I want to reinforce that uh, it's not just simply handing a piece of paper, but really should be a meeting, a conversation, a visit uh, devoted to reviewing the treatments that have occurred and outlining the plan. And it should be a face-to-face meeting. Uh, That's really the standard for this. Excellent. Thank you. And uh, this will probably be our last question um, for Dr. Fleischman. Um, So who do I talk to about my long-term and late effects of cancer? Do I talk to my oncologist or my primary care physician? Well, Start with the oncologist and then um, bring it to your primary care provider. 
Um, some of the long things that seem like they could be long-term may actually not happen, and some may persist. Um, and it is a really a, a, a team effort between them to figure out you know, what to do next, um, who to, which specialist to see if that is necessary, or who to visit because um, these are, as, as we spoke about in the plans, the, the, de the details here are really important about what to do. But it really should start with the oncologist and go to the primary care provider. And Dr. Jacobson, do you wish to add to that? Uh, I'm sorry, we had a lightning strike here, and I missed the first part of this. So I've, I'm back online, thankfully. Uh, but I'll, let's, if we have time, just move on to the next question. Okay, and this question would be for you. And so, um, so how do you like that? The weather patterns do affect our calls. No question about that. So, um, so Dr. Um, Jacobson, what are some side effects to look out for after finishing cancer treatments in a general way? Um, Yes, so um, the most common side effect after finishing cancer treatment is fatigue. And uh, in many cases, the fatigue will diminish over time, but in some patients, it will not. Uh, then other uh, side effects will really be more specific about the nature of the treatment. And so we know that uh, certain forms of cancer chemotherapy uh, cause what's known as peripheral neuropathy, uh, changes in sensation and possibly pain in the extremities. Uh, but those are some of the major side effects of uh, conventional chemotherapy. Excellent. Thank you. And Dr. Fleischman, do you wish to add anything to that? Yeah, doc, Dr. Messner, oh, we've discussed this before, often chuckles about my comparison to a three-legged stool uh, when it comes to fatigue, that the proper diet, uh, nutrition, proper activity, and proper rest are all essential if they're in balance. And like a three-legged stool, if one leg is a little bit shorter or a little bit longer, it's wobbly. Um, and I, I encourage people to think of the situation like that, to be able to try to get a handle on all of those three things so that you can preserve the most energy possible. And as far as the peripheral neuropathy, um, having it, uh, seeing a specialist who understands about this type of nerve pain rather than just regular post-operative pain um, and the ways to treat it, often it's with medications, sometimes with physical therapy and other physical therapy modalities is essential. Excellent. Well, I actually want to thank um, our speakers today. You've been phenomenal. I also want to thank all of you who actually have asked such really great questions. Um, online uh, today. This has been an incredible program. It's a program that we would love to offer more often. It's an important program because there are so many, so many of you out there and so many of you have so many questions and issues that you're dealing with. Um, and um, so I did say to you, I know there are many more of you in queue, so we know you have more questions. So the first place to go to with your questions, of course, with any of our programs is your healthcare team. Um, and but I know many of you like to get resources in other places as well. Um, we often recommend that people contact the National Cancer Institute. Um, it's a wonderful resource, um, and, um, and um, they have a toll-free number, and they also have a website, www.cancer.gov, and they have a live chat feature on their website where you can post your question, and their information specialist will immediately get you that information. There also is an Office of Cancer Survivorship, which you've received information about as well um, through the um, NIH and CI, um, and that is another wonderful resource as well. Um, in addition, um, for those of you who actually um, would like to follow up with um, any questions or, or concerns in terms of 
accessing services from Cancer Care, you can simply call Cancer Care at 1-800-813-4673 or visit our website at www.cancercare.org. And most importantly, um, as we conclude the program, we don't want any one of you to feel alone in coping with cancer survivorship or any of the issues that you're confronting, either as a person themselves as a cancer survivor or as a family member, friend, partner, colleague, um, part of that whole continuum of people who've been there. Um, and so I think that um, it is important to know that there are resources out you. Cancer Care is one of them, but there are many, many others, and we will be sure that you, they're all listed on, the, on our materials, of course, that we're promoting this program with, but there are many resources out there for you to access. And really, um, and those services, many of them, are there is no cost for them, and that's important also to many of you. So again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you a very fine day. Thank you all for your participation. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.